Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Enterprise Linux Security episode 29 this time, titled High Level Threats. And I'm here as always with Zhao. How are you doing? I'm fine, Jay. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And today we have an episode that uh, is more or, le more or less like a spy novel. We're going to be looking at some spy and uh, intelligence agencies operations and all of that. So it's going to be pretty interesting. I love these episodes. It's just so entertaining, um, especially when, you know, other people do them. You know, we have Darknet Diaries and all these other things. These are the topics yeah. that um, give us a look at what's going on in the world, but also how people think and sometimes how they think outside the box. Yeah. So let's give the, the background for this one, because this goes back a while. So this goes back to... I don't know, 2013, 2012, something like that, around the time that uh, Edward Snowden came out and uh, released lots of confidential information. So at the time, he released something that uh, was akin to an operation manual to one of the three-letter agencies in the US, detailing mm -hmm. how they operated, what tools they used, the, the, the procedures, and all of that. And flash forward a few years, uh, forward in relation to that, to 2016 and 2017, and we had the Shadow Brokers incident. Now, the Shadow Brokers incident was when a group called the Shadow Brokers, obviously, um, because everybody has these weird names, um, they came out and they said that they had this huge dump of data related to the Equation Group, which is an advanced persistent threat group that uh, we know was behind some high-profile attacks on the years around that time. And they claimed they had lots of tools from the equation group. And they were asking intelligence agencies all over the world for some ransom to release those inf that information because it would be useful for them. And apparently nobody decided to pay up, so they released that to the public domain so everybody could have access to that. A part of that dump, the shadow broker dump, was a set of uh, private keys. And nobody actually knew what those private keys were used where the where the door that matched those keys was found it's like somebody giving you a door a key and saying okay behind the door that this key unlocks there's this huge pile of gold now you just have to find the door but you have no idea which building or which city or even which country that that door will be so you had lots of these keys and earlier this month i believe we're recording this in may yes earlier this month um a group from China actually released information about a, a tool, and this is the tool that we'll be talking about on this episode called PVP47. And they released some information about it, where one of the interesting things is that one of the keys found in the Shadow Brokers dump actually lets you remote control this tool. So they know that that tool was part of the, the equation group uh, tool set, which from Edward Snowden's um, information, we know is part of one of the three-letter agencies in the US. So there is this chain of events separated by years that is only now coming to light and letting us actually have a broader picture of what happened. Um, and this group from China called the Bengu Lab, um, you might look at this as a cybercrime group or a cyber researcher group, depends on what side of the fence you are in relation to this. But they released a pretty extensive um, report on the tool. And it has some very, very interesting uh, uh, operation. Yeah, this is a pretty interesting story because I'm going through the the notes and um, the articles, uh, which we'll, of course, have posted in the usual places. Yeah, yeah. 
And it's um, just like you said, it's like a spy novel. It's like something yeah. I would actually read about as part of fiction, but it's not. This is the stuff that would actually make a good movie rather than those weird hacker movies that we get all the time that show nothing like this. This is actually something that I would pay a, a very large sum to actually see someone do properly. But anyway, yeah. going back to, to the tool and what it does and how it's used and why it matters. The way it matters for the enterprise crowd is a bit easier to get into, and we might just get that out of the way. Your, usually, your usual threat to your networks, to your enterprise networks, is twofold. Either it's the script kiddies that found some nice script on the internet that they're just pointing at your IPs and they let it run to see if they can get in somehow and just for, I don't know, for bragging points. And then there are some more dedicated attackers that will actually do the reconnaissance and will actually look at your network topology and all that and actually have more advanced tools. This one is in a different level. This is in a category of its own. Um, the mechanisms that it uses and the way that it's deployed and the way that it's remote controlled and the way that it communicates with its command and control um, computer, it's quite different from the usual stuff. This is something that you wouldn't catch on your firewall, for example, because the way that it hides the traffic, it's so different from other tools. Um, the standard way that you do security would probably never catch this. This guy has actually caught a sample of this, uh, this Chinese group, in 2013. They had no idea of identifying it. It was before all of the leaks and all of the dams and all of that. And they found it on a honeypot. Uh, you have to understand that this is a Chinese group with a high-profile position inside of the Chinese state, so they probably have access to IPs that would be government-managed or something like that, and they deployed the honeypot on a pretty specific spot precisely to catch groups of this level trying to get into. And they did. They identified some systems that received the, the payload, and they managed to isolate it and damp it and look at the code. This is named BVP47 because BVP is the most common string that is found on that, uh, that initial sample that they got. And 47 is found extensively on the, the communication that it uses. Um, yeah, 0x47. Yeah, it's 47 in hex. Yep. Um, which, if my math is not, uh, is not tricking me, it's 77 decimal. But anyway, that's hmm. me just saying. I'll take your word for it. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> OK, then the first interesting point about it. Um, every TCP connection starts with the same packet. It's the synchronization packet. It's how one system tells the other, OK, I want to start chatting with you. Let's initiate the communication. And then you get an acknowledge back, and then you get the CNAC, and then the communication starts. Usually, yep. and by usually, I mean 99.999% of the time, SIM packets don't have a payload. They are just used as a starting point for the communication. The interesting bits come after that. These guys, on the first packet, they were immediately sending payload. Wow. And that does not get caught on firewalls, because firewalls are not looking at SIM packets. They are not supposed to have a payload. It's not outside of the standard, but then no one puts a payload on SIM packets. So these guys would immediately use the uh, SIM packet to deploy some command and control information, either to start the, the, the actual application running on the server or something like that. And this way, they would avoid most of the firewall-based rules. And that's and the 
that's a really scary aspect of this because we yeah. talk about firewalls and and I always say it's all about you know implementing them correctly which is you know not just saying I have a firewall so I'm good you know as we used to do when Windows XP Service Pack 2 came out and uh, you know we had a firewall and everybody just said yes to everything that came up um, defeating the purpose of a firewall but an effective firewall would just block specific ports from certain IPs and now with this, that's not going to help us. Yeah, it's not going to help us at all because it's using so so unexpected patterns that you're not looking for them. You're not going to block those by default, or it's going to be very tricky for you to remember that you need to block this stuff because nobody is expecting this stuff to be abused this way. So right. this is how they initiated the, the connection. The first packet was immediately part of the, the command and control uh, operation. And basically, it would fire up whatever code they wanted to run on the other side. The, the payload was there, but they needed to initiate a specific part of that payload, whether it was a web server that they wanted running on the end server, on the attacked server, or there was a file transfer mechanism that they wanted to start on that end. And nothing would be running until it received that same packet with the order to do so. And another very interesting thing here is that the way that they run, they run inside of the Linux kernel. And they run in a, in a specific subsystem of the Linux kernel that we'll get into because it's an old friend of ours. We've already discussed it in previous episodes. But they can run in a port that's already used by a different program. Okay, Every sysadmin on the audience that, that listens to this right now remembers sometime that they decided to fire up a web server two times and the, the system came back and said, oh, I can't do that. The program, the, that part is already in use. You're being them. Again, hmm, yeah. the wording may vary. Right. Um, these guys managed to do that. So you can have your web server on your system running perfectly fine on port 80 and 443, and they would still be able to listen on port 80 and 443. Okay. So again, wow. scary. That is, that is really scary. I mean, that happens to me still every now and then because, you know, I've run into situations where you have a dependency come in that starts a web server. I'm like, what's going on here? Um, and it's conflicting with the web server I already have or, you know, vice versa, especially when you, you get into proxying and you have uh, your proxy on port 80 and 443 and then something um, on a different port after that. And we, yeah, like you said, we've all run into that. And I think we, you know, at least I didn't realize this until today, we kind of have a little bit of... Um, relief that we feel like okay port 80 is is claimed so no yeah. one's running anything on that port because apache's running on that port and we'll just block that port from everything except for the ips that want to access it now um yeah that's very disturbing that that's not going to help us in this case no in this case it really is not going to help you and imagine this it won't even show if you use netstat to listen to show all the listening ports it won't show up because it will show you apache or nginx or something like that listening on port 80 and this won't be listed so you won't even know that it's running there and it runs inside of the berkeley packet filter the the bpf it's a subsystem of the kernel and it has been used and abused so much over the past few months and past couple of years. Basically, what this subsystem does, it does the, the main idea behind it when it was implemented and added to the kernel was to provide a way for you to implement a high-performance uh, firewall. So it lets you run user code inside of the kernel context, and it limits the amount of functionality that you can expose. 
but it does give you direct access to network communication packets and lets you receive and send them um, at the kernel level. It never reaches the application. So these guys wow. found a way to run their code at that level, so they have first access to every network packet that crosses the kernel. And since the kernel has the, the NIC uh, drivers and has the networking stack and all of that, all of the packets will go through the kernel. So they can see all of the communications that go in and they can uh, alter it as they see fit. It's the perfect way for both command and control and to exfiltrate data. It's running inside the kernel. It won't show up as it won't show up as a process. If you use PS, if you use, if you check uh, uh, slash proc, if you check any of that, you won't find any instances running of this code. And again, wow. scary. That is, and and you know, it's it's hard for me in some ways to talk about something like this because what I want to do is call it clever, but some people might construe that as a compliment. But it's a it's kind of a compliment, but not a positive compliment, if that makes sense, because. That's what happens out there is people find workarounds to things and, and we need to you know also know about these things and know how to mitigate these things or what we can do about them. But there is a clever aspect. I mean, yeah, even people doing illegal things that are bad can do things in a clever way, um, which is very disturbing in this case, especially. But I also kind of think about like, you know, the mindset and we've talked about the attacker mindset before, which I don't have myself because I, I don't feel like I'd ever come up with this. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, when I'm a kid or when I was a kid and we're playing Nintendo and then my friends are trying to find ways to glitch Mario through a wall or jump over the flagpole and do all these crazy things to get out of bounds of the, of the game. I'm wondering how many of those kids grew up to be security professionals because, <laughs> you know, the same mindset, you know, it's like, how does, how does this start? But that's just an interesting, um, you know, humorous aside there, but um, back to reality, um, this is, I think it'll cause administrators like us to also think about things a different way than we normally would. Yeah, and that's why I started by saying that this was on a different level. This is not like the standard tools that you find out there. This is not something that you can just run off of Kali or something like that and try to attack a system. This isn't there. This isn't that. Uh, this is something that took a lot of effort and probably took a lot of money and very bright individuals working together to, to put together code like this. This doesn't happen overnight or by accident or something like that. It takes a very intimate knowledge of the, the system and all of that. And some of the payloads that these guys could deploy was not even tailored specifically at Linux. They just would use the, the Linux system as a stepping stone to other systems. They could deploy PowerShell scripts to other machines on the network through that system. They could use that system as command and control for other systems that they would attack in a row. And the way that they fooled communications through same packets and all of that, it made it practically invisible to both to the networking side and to the uh, the, the system side because you couldn't see the processes running. You couldn't see anything out of order running. And they would be very conservative about uh, taking up resources or anything like that so that they wouldn't show up or slow down the system. So even indirect observation would make would be difficult to, to spot. It really would and be. Yeah, this is the type of tools that are being used by intelligence agencies. So it's outside of the regular realm of the tools that you would be facing every day as a sysadmin or a security professional and trying to defend against. This is the stuff that doesn't operate by those rules. They actually follow a different set of rules to, to work. This is a very interesting analysis. Again, 
these guys will be biased, obviously. They have a vested interest in putting as much information out here because this is a rival competing group that's coming up with a great tool, so they want to put that tool out in public. Don't expect other nation states and groups like backed by this type of nation states that to have anything different. They will be have, operating at this level, if not as advanced, but similar, similar operation procedures. And again, when they found that the, one of the keys in the in the shadow brokers them could actually let you con command and control this, that was an eye opener because there that wasn't the only key there. There were many other keys that we still haven't found the door for. There are many keys in that them that still have stuff to to be found about them, and we need to find what tools they actually let you control. Because, for example, the, the communications on this tool, they were encrypted, encrypted three times with different keys. Um, nobody does that. You don't triple encrypt anything. <laughs> yeah, just I don't think no I've sense. even done that, and I, I overcomplicate everything. <laughs> that makes no sense, because apparently right. you're not adding anything special to the encryption. It's already encrypted, so it should be already random stuff. If you encrypt it again, you, you randomize it again and again to no obvious benefit. But they were doing that, and they were using different keys and different key sets and all of that. They they actually mentioned that it might be to provide different levels of access. Each of the encryption levels could be used by different operators so that no one could actual, actually do it by themselves. So this could be just a separation of control here. Maybe for or accounting. Or it could just be as simple as it's encryption so nice, we have to encrypt it thrice. <laughs> But you know, yeah. as a quick takeaway, though, it's um, it's always interesting how we have two ends of a spe of a spectrum here, where we might have a um, a situation in the news, and at first it seems like a really big deal. Oh my God, Unify was hacked, or um, all these companies are getting taken down by this hacking group just to find out. Um, in one case, it's a you know pretty much an employee on the inside, and then in another case, it's bribery and not very technical. So that's one end of the spectrum. Then on the other end of the spectrum, we have something that's um, actually technical. And this, um, I absolutely have no feeling whatsoever that we're ever going to see. Oh yeah, yeah, people are just bribed. We have technical details here yeah. about how things were going, and it's not just on that end of the spectrum. It's also beyond that end of the spectrum that we normally get because usually it's like, oh, yeah, someone uh, found out that there's this, you know, unpatched vulnerability and they did a vulnerability chain and got in. Like this is um, one of those situations where if somebody got bit by this, they could be doing, you know, pretty much everything the way they should be doing it with, with same yeah. default and still be a victim. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, vulnerabilities and all of that. Part of the payload that they had was exploiting non-zero-day vulnerabilities. So they were actually looking for zero-day vulnerabilities to either escalate or try to get into other systems and all of that. So the advice that we always give that you should patch, it still applies very much to this. At least you make life slightly harder for these guys. You won't keep them out if they're sufficiently motivate, motivated to get into your network. Right. Don't make life easier for them. They really it's don't need to. Time. Yeah. <laughs> These guys at this level, they really don't need to. And traces of infection of this were found in 45 different countries or something like that, and always at the top level. So government, government agencies, um, research institutes, uh, universities. 
So those were the main targets for these guys, at least the ones that were found, because again, companies probably are not scanned for traces of this because you don't have the access and they are under no, they are not properly motivated to disclose this. This is not standard hacking operations. If you're being targeted by something like this, there is something else going on and you have some other type of contracts or deals or something going around that make you a target for this because this is not your average mem and pop store that gets hacked with this type of tool right yeah this the, yeah absolutely this is um like you were saying it's it's like a spy novel and and the only novel you know i've read and i haven't read that many to be honest but i i always mention this book um called demon but it's spelled the unix way d-a-e-m-o-n and then its sequel freedom tm they that was going to be a movie but <clears throat> excuse me but um it didn't work out but that was a very realistic story talking about sequel injections and all these other things that actually happen in real life because it was written by somebody who's involved in cybersecurity that understands how this stuff works. Um, this is, you know, since then, this is the, the first time since then that I, I see something that would make a great movie. And this isn't even fiction. Yeah, this isn't, <laughs> this really isn't even fiction. Um, it does bring to, to light something else. This is something that was caught and was brought to light by a competing group. And at some point, you have to wonder how many other tools like these are out in the wild being used actively, and nobody ever finds out about it. I mean, a few years back, we had those <laughs> that issue in one of uh, in a nuclear facility in Iran, where the, um, the accelerators that they were using—I'm sure they weren't accelerators—some other term that they were using, supposedly to enrich uranium, and they were forced out of tolerance they were made to run faster until they actually broke down by rope code that was introduced in the system and everybody suspects who introduced that code in the system but there were no fingers pointed because it's really hard to track the origin of this stuff at the time the infection was found to have come from a usb dropped pen in the in the parking lot that somebody picked up and added to a computer yeah so um, um i'm so just as an aside Okay, you just mentioned, you know, a USB key being found, right? We need to like really note this and not just acknowledge it, but actually acknowledge this, write it down, bookmark something related to this because when you're just like we were talking before, when we're dealing with security and training people on why they should care about security, there's nothing greater than real stories about real people because when something happens, that's a lot better than telling somebody it can happen to tell someone it can happen, but it did. And here's an article and this is what happened as a result of it. Um, we need to kind of save these stories and kind of use them for training because this is, this is the kind of thing right here. That's going to really make people understand the importance of security. I think. Yeah. And, and events like this, <laughs> we used to joke that this is just, is never going to happen in real life. This is something that just happens in the movies or something like that. Well, this is the opposite. This is something that happened in real life that hasn't made it to a movie yet. So yeah, you really should pay attention to this type of stories. Um, yep. Again, this is a very interesting read. The, the whole report, it's pretty extensive. It goes into really good detail. It gives you traffic analysis. It gives you a look at the, the binary code. It gives you a look at uh, how it's deployed and how it contacts other computers. 
um, if you're into this type of tools, if you're into network security and all of that, you should pay attention to this. Um, we're not going to offer very good advice to protecting you against this because it's it will just scratch the surface. And again, there isn't very good protection that you can actually use to, to stop something like this, rather than except using, for example, a good honeypot. And the way that they caught the initial sample in 2013 was actually a good, uh, a good look into it. They had the honeypot in a good location. They were paying very good attention to the system. And by this, I mean they were imaging it daily and comparing the images from one day to the other to find differences in the system. And that's how they found it initially, how they found the first drop because there was no other indicator in the system that it had been compromised. They just found differences in the images from one day to the next. Obviously not the differences on something like that. They found it in places where it shouldn't be. Um, and that's how they found the initial sample. Right. Yeah, I think that, that in mind. I was just going to say, though, um, this is the very uncomfortable truth that I'm hoping I've mentioned this before. I don't remember mentioning this. Um, maybe because subconsciously I don't want to mention this. I don't want to acknowledge this. Even I'm human. And, you know, I, I fall into the human aspect where I need to acknowledge things more as well. We're all human, right? At least I think we are. Um, but the whole point is that um, we need to understand that, unfortunately, there are things out there that can happen that you cannot protect yourself from, no matter how good your security hygiene is. There are some things, maybe not as many things, but there are things that'll still get right through. And just like you were saying, you know, normally we would like to say, well, you could protect yourself from this kind of thing um, by doing this. And I'm not saying that um, there isn't going to be something that might protect you from this later on someone that's equally clever might come out with something but then it's a cat and mouse game because then there could be another um, bypass that you know that also can't help you with and this is when you really need to take a look at your disaster recovery plan and you need to make sure it works because that might be the last resort that might be the only thing yeah and the basic thing and we already mentioned this, especially in the last episodes the basic thing you can do is patch. That's what makes it more difficult for this type of attacks to happen. Yep. Um, when a vulnerability comes out, when you see a new CVE come out, usually you see a very brief summary of what happens and how it affects your system and all of that. There is a whole story behind that CVE. There is the way that the coder or the security researcher or somebody found the vulnerability. And they usually don't find it by accident. They're actually actively looking for some way to break a specific system. So there is this whole story behind it. Um, if a patch comes out for something that you're using it, you should really deploy it because the CVE is not telling you the whole story. The CVE description is only telling you just the smallest amount, the smallest offering you just the smallest glimpse into what, what's actually behind it. The kernel security team, for example, they have a policy of never disclosing the vulnerabilities that they fix. They will create fixes for according to Greg Crow Hartman, the other on a video he published on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, he comes out and he says, okay, with every single release, you should pick up the latest version because we include upwards from 10 to 20 new vulnerability fixes. We don't create CVEs for them. We don't announce them so that people don't get information about the vulnerability. But that doesn't mean that they are the only ones that know about it. Okay, right. And it will get fixed in the latest version. 
So if you have a latest version available for something that you're running, you should really take it. You should really accept the, the fact that you need to patch. Again, I'm going to plug kernel care. I, mm -hmm. I do work at Xcare. We do offer live patching services. And if your drawback to actually patching is the downtime, is the disruption that it creates, is the amount of work that it adds to your workload, look into live patching. It lets you be protected while avoiding all of those pitfalls. Um, mm -hmm. And patching is the most basic thing that you can do to try to stay protected from these things. And at, at its core, it's the most fundamental thing that you can do security-wise, other than training your personnel like we already talked about. Um, but do yeah. look into patching. It might not keep you protected from every single threat. No security solution will ever keep you protected from 100% of the threats because they're appearing new ones every single day. And because there are classes of threats like this one that are very hard to protect again against because the way that they try to avoid detection is really clever, is really ingenious and this somewhere. Sometimes we'll be ahead of the security researchers and the other side of the, of the cybersecurity scene. Yeah, I mean, not patching is almost like you know, not quite like leaving your door open to your server room because, you know, that obviously gets people the ability to just um, get a hammer and start bashing things. But if you think about the um, symbolic state of it, that it is kind of like that. By not patching, you're just kind of like painting a target on your servers, just opening the door. It doesn't mean that someone will still get in, but at least it, it won't be easy for them to get in. If an open door, if I leave the door open to my house and I go away, like I really shouldn't be expecting my stuff to still be there when I get home. It's just like you shouldn't expect your servers to work um, tomorrow if you're not patching them. That's just the way it is. Yeah. And again, the CVs will not tell you the whole story. That's something else that you need to keep in mind. Um, but yeah, again, pretty interesting read. You really should look it up. It's a very interesting read. Keep in mind that the report will be biased. So don't expect this to be 100% unbiased research. It's not. And I don't think they even claim to be. But anyway, they do try to paint the, the equation group in a bad light. And they do try to point the finger at the, the nation state behind the equation group, obviously, for their interest. Um, but yeah, look up the, the list of countries that were attacked and the types of companies. They do list the, the IPs that were attacked that they found in logs regarding this. And it's uh, very extensive. Yeah, they even go as far in one of the graphics to put devil horns on the hacker person. <laughs> so, yeah, you say it's not not biased. Like, I, I don't personally think I've ever seen horns on a, a hacker before, but you never know, right? I, I don't know th these things. We're learning as well. Maybe that's the the. Sign. I mean, oh, that person. The only thing, the only yeah. thing you know that hackers have is a hoodie, right? Right. That's maybe well. That's why they wear it. <laughs> But but yeah, I mean, the article is still worth a read because it's very, um, it's very interesting and you can find more information about what's going on and um, how things happened and how things are going. Because I'm sure we'll hear more about this, just like we normally do, or something related to this, or something that's been, that spun off from this, or there, there's going to be something. Or a new tool pops up that uses another of the keys that was in the Shadow Broker stamp. And that's going to be very interesting as well. Because there are still lots of keys there that we don't know what their match. That's going to be a really hard thing to find. <laughs> but you never know. There's there's a lot of uh, very determined people out there too. So No one expected this one to come to light and it did so. 
who knows? Maybe they already have the other tools and they already know how to, to use them. Thank you. I think you're right. All right. So, yeah, definitely check out that story. We'll have the links to the necessary or the usual places for you to follow along. And, of course, if you have a comment, leave it wherever you're watching and or listening to this so we could uh, get some opinions and thoughts and things of that nature, some engagement. But um, I, I think this is probably creating plenty of engagement, considering how weird and unique this whole thing yeah. is. Yeah. At least it's different from what we usually analyze and we go into. This, again, spy novel. <laughs> it's the first thing that came to mind when I read this. This is a great plot for a spy novel. Maybe you should write it. Maybe you should use <laughs> it as inspiration and then uh, maybe write a book. That'd be fun um, if you're into that kind of thing. But so I think we, yeah, I think we covered as much as we can because I think without it being a full science and computer science lesson and, and getting into the weeds, which, you know, would be fun, don't get me wrong, it would also take a couple of hours, I think, to really dive in any deeper. But we'll leave the research for people to find it. And if anything changes or comes from this, we'll let you guys know. Yeah. And yeah, we don't get into the code analysis that these guys do because it's high level assembly and it's really hard to get that across on a podcast without showing you the actual code. So yeah, that that's hard for a lot of people to <laughs> interpret anyway. I, I, I'm, I'm no good at it personally, so I would be completely useless in that discussion. Now, of course, not everybody understands a few assembly instructions. <laughs> the way these guys present it when they when they share a piece of um, of encryption code in assembly is that oh can't you see that this is obviously an EAS uh, elliptic curve something? Of course we do. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> in general conversation. We're talking about that all the time, actually. <laughs> in, in, in fact, anyway. uh, in fact, my son speaks in UDP. I don't know if you knew that. Like he he talks <laughs> at you. But with no real care about whether you acknowledge what he's saying, heard what he's saying, or what your response is, he just throws words in your general direction. So I think maybe some of the tech stuff is bleeding into society nowadays. But yeah, nice that's another one. story. Nice one. You know, this is going to be recorded for posterity, right? He's going to look at this at some point. I think he'll agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think he'll, he'll understand. Because I probably do that too. So anyway. Okay. So okay. yeah, there you go. And um, do you have any other th thoughts you want to mention about the subject? No, not on this specific one. I believe we covered the, the high-level stuff that uh, that we wanted to get across. Um, like I said at the beginning, this is a tool on a different level. This is not something you're going to be finding on your day-to-day -day activities. But if you happen to stumble on something like this on your network, do let us know. We would really love to look at something like that firsthand. Yeah, and if you've um, you've dealt with any of these things, let us know. I think it'd be yeah. really interesting to have somebody that works in security or as an IT administrator, network administrator, you know, one of those job titles that has been the unfortunate victim of this. And I'm not. I'm hoping nobody yeah. is a victim, but it is the case. That's why we have a podcast. If if they're allowed to talk about it, um, we could rename the company, rename the name, or, you know, rename the names of the innocent or whatever. Um, write in and yeah. let us know. I think I would like to try to get a count-by-count count detail of what someone went through to get through one. Absolutely. I think that'd be a very exciting topic. Especially the initial detection. Tell us how you found it in the first place. Yep. So, yeah, let us know. We would love to do an episode. Hopefully, we'll be able to do that sometime this year. But in the meantime, that was our episode on this particular topic. 
and uh, check out the articles like we've mentioned a few times. Um, very interesting stuff here. And if nothing else, I think the main takeaway here is, you know, aside from the usual, make no assumptions that, you know, everything is going to yeah. be the same, but just consider that, you know, people are thinking outside the box and they try to go in and, and get things from your systems because um, you need to think outside the box too. And sometimes it could just be a matter of dusting off that um, disaster recovery plan just to make sure that it works because unfortunately there could be a time where, and especially with something like this, they might need to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I believe we rented about this for long enough. Um, yeah. Thanks everybody. And until the next one. Yep. See you later. Bye.